Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand, and this is the case of Lucille Butterworth, Episode 4. In Episode 3, police began building a case against Geoffrey Hunt and brought him in for questioning. In a surprise breakthrough, police have arrested a man on the state's northwest coast for the murder of Lucille Butterworth. It's understood they arrested him at his home in and took him to Devonport CIB for questioning. We have conducted inquiries. Those inquiries indicate to us that Miss Butterworth knew you, that you knew Miss Butterworth, and we believe you, at that bus stop, offered her a lift. She entered your vehicle and was never seen again. If you have evidence to involve me in that crime, or if it is a crime, then you charge me. There was nothing left to do but dig. A jury would not convict Jeff Hunt on circumstantial evidence alone. Investigators needed something that would corroborate what former officers Ken O'Gary and Barry Dillon had told them, that Hunt had confessed he killed Lucille Butterworth and dumped her body on the southern bank of Tasmania's Derwent River. They had the exact location. At least a fortnight excavating a site on the outskirts of Hobart in search of evidence, all the remains of Lucille Butterworth, who has been missing for almost 46 years. Police say they have strong information that Miss Butterworth's remains are somewhere between a disused gravel car park on the Lyle Highway and marshlands on the River Derwent, eight and a half kilometres west of Granton. On July 3, 2015, the dig began amid high hopes. Inspector David Plumpton knew that success in this endeavour was a double-edged sword. If they did find Lucille's remains, Tasmania police would have a lot of explaining to do. Why did it take four decades to act on the information they'd been given? They didn't tell us. Now, they didn't go searching up there. They didn't go digging up there. They didn't do bloody nothing up there. Nothing. At least David Plumpton and Carrie Millhouse were now doing all they could for Jim Butterworth and his family, even down to protecting a 46-year-old crime scene in the days leading up to the dig. Heavy machinery will arrive at the site on Monday to help with the search, which will occur on both sides of the highway. Police hope to locate her remains or evidence that she was left there by the person they believe took her life. Once news of the search for Lucille got out, the dig site was open to tampering. This was not lost on Jim Butterworth. As we were driving around New Norfolk, he shared a confidence. We were stopped overlooking the old mental asylum. Some ancient cars had caught Jim's eye. Yeah, an old Buick there. I like old watches rather than old cars. A bit Do easy you? to deal with, yeah. Well. If you know anybody like that. Okay, so I'll tell you the story then. About a, about a watch. Jim began rummaging through the glove box of the car. For what, I had no idea. I mean, I didn't intend telling you this. I'd have got the bloody thing out. What's that? I'd have got this watch out. What's the watch? Because I know Lucille was wearing one on the day. She was. And I've got one similar. I was digging. And what do I dig up? I dig a bloody watch up, don't I? 
Now, if you dug that up out of that bloody river down there, yeah, you could just about be convinced that was the that was Lucille's watch. You could well be. Jim tells me he considered planting the watch on the dig site. I'm not sure why he shared this. Perhaps to express the sheer hopelessness of the family's position. They'd been let down by police time and time again. Maybe Jimmy could finally force the issue by doing this. Later he went to David Plumpton and confessed. So, I said, I've got something in the car that I'll show you, David. See this watch, David? I found it out at that dig out there. Oh, you... No, you didn't. No, I didn't, but I did think about putting the bloody thing in there. Yes, I'm sure you would have, boy. The, the, the kind of thing that would cross your mind. Oh. Any reasonable person would have that cross yeah. their mind, I'm sure. Of course. But despite two weeks of digging, shifting and sifting tons of earth, there was no trace of Lucille. The team got down to the old gravel surface of the lay-by as it was in 1969. They pushed out 20 to 30 metres from the road towards the river, but not a scrap of evidence was recovered. The search location was always a best guess, based on the word of Hunt, who was reluctant to provide any more than a general location to Detectives O'Gary and Dillon back in 1976. The location that uh, Dillon and O'Gary were taken to by Hunt, he wouldn't get out of the vehicle, Mm. but there was a clear location there. That was the site of the excavation. Firstly, were you satisfied with that search? I mean, it was there were particular circumstances, you had a particular period of time to do it in. Were you satisfied that you covered the ground? No, not at all. Not at all. But, um, when we dug, unfortunately, we were dealing with a king tide. So where we were digging was subject later in the day to water up round our ankles. Whereas back in 1969, may very well not have been. So he could have walked out 50 metres further in a place that we had no hope of actually getting to. But I believe um, if we had our time again, or if we had more time and more money, we could actually take the dig out into that swampland in a direction from where I believe the car was parked in a direct line towards that river. In that area, it's inhospitable. It's, uh, no one goes fishing through there. No one goes bushwalking through there. No one camps in there. No one has any reason to go in there for 50 years. So over time, you know, a body could sink into the mud and just um, deteriorate and, um, and just sink and be lost forever. Yeah, I mean, I've been told by more than one person that, uh, that the Derwent doesn't give up bodies that easily. It's heavily silted, it's, it's tidal, it's... Yeah. And there are a number of people over the years that may have ended up in it that were never found. Yeah, no, I believe that's the case. We had a young fellow jump off the bridge um, in the middle of winter. Uh, you know, he was lost to the river and he wasn't found for, um, I think it was somewhere a month or six weeks, and they found him several kilometres downriver. So that's how hard it is to find a body that's not obscured. But see, that's right. So you've got a body that's in in brush that's eventually going to be covered over by water and either sunk down or washed into deeper water, whatever. But did it surprise anyone that there wasn't a body found? Did that ever lead you to consider that what he told uh, Gary and Dylan might not have been the truth, that there could have been another spot? Absolutely, yeah. And someone has said that um, criminals are creatures of habit when he murdered um, in 1976. The victim was Susan Knight. He um, dumped the body where the crime occurred, where he raped her and, and murdered her. He left the body there and covered her up with a few branches and rocks and didn't try and bury her or otherwise. So that's why we think that uh, Lucille was just dumped and, um, 
you know, he didn't take that extra measure to um, try and dig and, and obscure properly. There was a large-scale search conducted mostly by the family up and down the riverbank and, um, and police as well. David Plumpton disagrees with Millhouse's analysis of the dig. The people involved in doing that, I thought, did an amazing job. Like, they had the university down there, mm. they had geologists there. Mm. They had a drone up going over for their mapping. It wasn't just working out off old maps. They sieved through every significant amount of bones were found. Oh, animal bones, everything like that. They then get the university out again, who put in about 70 or 80 probes at various spots. I'm not an expert, but my review of what they did and their advice at the end, we've done all we can, gone out as far as we can, was more than satisfactory to me. Three years later, Jimmy hasn't given up. When I meet him, he's organising a group of friends with metal detectors to finish the job for the police. His wife Sue obtained title records for the day Lucille disappeared, discovering it was low tide when Hunt allegedly dumped her body. The rising river may well have carried her away in the night before she could be discovered. Two things. One, I don't think this dig went out far enough because I walked out there. The other one is the fact that uh, seven years after Lucille, the hunt killed Susan Knight. They questioned him and uh, he said he killed Lucille. Then the police got him, took him up to where he killed Susan Knight, took him down the Lyle Highway and said, all right, you told us you killed Lucille, where did you put her? So, and he showed them the site. Uh, now, that's seven years later. And we'd been searching for quite a few years in all sorts of places. Why didn't the police tell us seven years later where Hunt had told them he put up? Honestly, good God almighty. So there's a couple of things that annoy me. If the Butterworth would now to go back again and press further in towards the river, would that be worthwhile doing? Are they wasting their time or is it do you think it's a possibility that there could be a result? I think I think definitely a possibility. You know, all all the um, contingencies aside, you know, money and time and and so on. I believe if they dug down far enough out, I believe they'd find something. Mm. I, I believe she's there. Um, in 1976, Jeffrey Hunt was telling truths. He had no reason to, to lie. You know, he's going to be in custody for the rest of his life, as he thought. He didn't know that he's going to be out in 24 years. He thought he was going to be locked up for the, for the rest of his life because we didn't have any, um, there was no parole then. He had nothing to, to lose by, by um, making those admissions. However, we believe uh, that Geoffrey Hunt was told to keep his mouth shut after he made the initial admission. We, was t- we believe he was told to keep his mouth shut. In 1976, Tasmanian police had rejected Geoffrey Hunt as a suspect in Lucille's murder. Nearly 40 years later, he was the prime suspect, arguably the only one. When Plumpton's team began working the case in 2010, John Lonigan, the policeman-turned-taxi driver, was the only possible avenue to follow. By mid-2015, Lonigan had faded into the background of the investigation. In fact, he died three years earlier before Plumpton could get to see him in Queensland. The only thing I wish is that I've got to see Lonigan in Queensland. Yeah, I would have liked to have interviewed Lonigan. Yeah, Lucille disappears August. He left in December that year. When he's in Sydney, he's interviewed at the same time by the police up there for a rape of someone in some flats, with Bondi or something like that. But the lady concerned couldn't identify him. 
So it would appear to me he's gone up there and he's still, he's raping women, albeit he wasn't suspected of any murder at the time or anything like that. He's still committing crime against women of violence. So, yeah, that's the only regret I have, Lonigan. So the file of evidence that went to the coroner, nearly 30 double binders of it, pointed squarely at Geoffrey Hunt. It was also a damning critique on the performance of Tasmanian police, not just when Lucille went missing, but over two generations, as Hunt's alleged confession remains secret, virtually untested. I can't point to any one person and say they were responsible for this. A number of people knew and simply failed to act as they rose through the ranks. No one wanted their fingerprints on this one. That is, until they risked being named adversely by the coroner in 2015. The investigation had been woefully under-resourced. Two officers working the case off the side of their desks, with no vehicles or budget. It should have been conducted by a cold case unit, with at least five officers on it full-time. But there was no cold case unit. It had been disbanded in 2011 due to budget cuts. And missing persons files like Butterworth were kicked out to busy stations in the regions. An investigation like this is not doomed to fail, but rather to underachieve. It's meant to tidy things up, to get enough cogent evidence before the coroner so he can make a determination, even if it's an open finding. But Plumpton had other ideas. After 44 years in the job, he felt more free in the knowledge he was just months from quitting. He'd actually delayed retirement to see this case through. There would be some home truths in the evidence he'd gathered for the coroner on Geoffrey Hunt. This is the whole thing. This is the police fault. If this was all 1970, we're sitting here talking. Well, 1977, because he murdered Susan in 1976. But if it's even 1977, he'd be charged. He would be before the Supreme Court charged on what we have. And it's our fault, the police, that they're lapsing time. So I sit here with the Butterworth family as a representative of Tasmania Police, who, for X number of years, pushed them aside, didn't provide them with any information. By not giving them information, they believed a whole set of circumstances that were wrong. But also, they were unable to do anything about things that may have been true. Because he, Jimmy Butterworth, throughout it all, every skerrick of information that's come up, he's chased down a rabbit hole. Mm. or 50 rabbit holes or 300 rabbit holes and doesn't stop and becomes a right pain but he's had to do that 40 years later if he did that four years later forced the issue then i think there'd have been a significant difference next police issue a call for public assistance and three new witnesses come forward claiming hunt also allegedly confessed while in jail to killing lucille He wouldn't let anyone get close to him and no one in their right mind would want to get close to that man anyway. That was Ginny, a prison guard who worked at Hayes Prison Farm near New Norfolk where Geoffrey Hunt was an inmate. Her memory of Hunt is much the same as almost everyone else. Hunt never made a single friend in the 24 years he was inside and he rarely interacted with others. Retired Detective Inspector David Plumpton. For the 20 odd years he's in jail and his childhood, he is his own company. He's become very well versed in 
his own thought processes. He's only at himself, he believes in himself, and he's got himself through a number of events that many others may not have been able to do that. But 24 years is a long time to keep your mouth shut, and perhaps Hunt did have some confidants, maybe even three, as it turned out. What he's alleged to have told them was a crucial break for Plumpton and the team. Well, he come yeah. ask me what I was in for, and I said I was in for rape of a woman. Oh, he quite pleased with that, so... Uh, dinner time, he come over and sat with me. It was 1980. A convicted rapist, Philip Roger Harris, was in the hospital section of Risdon Prison. He was there because authorities had deemed him a suicide risk while on remand in Launceston. Records show Hunt was in the hospital at the same time. Harris didn't know Hunt's first name, but his identification leaves no doubt. Yes, albino, white hair with pink eyes and rolling around his head all the bloody time. His crime now long in the past and paid for, Harris has never spoken before to the media. A word about his local lingo. When he refers to dinner, he actually means lunch. And in local parlance, tea is dinner, the evening meal. The conversations with Hunt took place over an 18-hour period. At dinner time, he said to me, did you hurt her or anything? I said, no. I said, I'm falsely accused of it. She bloody lied. Told heaps of lies. Anyway, and he said, well, how come you're in here? I said, because I pleaded guilty. I got sick of it. And he said, because at dinner time, he seemed disappointed that I didn't hurt her or anything. So I thought about it. That's... As you do in jail, you big no. He's a murderer, remember? So I said to him, well, I got in through the back door, it was open, and she was in the kitchen at the sink. And I picked up the wooden chair and bashed her with it. And uh, I said I bashed her unconscious, picked her up and put her over the table and I raped her. Oh, he liked that. And then he said, well, why didn't you kill her? Is any blood or anything? And I said, yeah, lots of blood. She's laying on the floor. Yeah, lots of blood. And he liked that too. I said, I thought I... He said, you should have killed her. I said, I thought I did. Uh. And the next day, he told me about Butterworth. That was breakfast time. Because I said to him, what are you in for? I already knew. And he said, uh, murder. Blah, 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 you know. All right. And he got talking about murder and this and that. And then he said about this uh, Lucille Butterworth that uh, he murdered before. And I said, when did you come up on that? And he said, well, I don't. They haven't found the body yet. Yeah. And I said, where did you murder her? And he told me that he knew her and blah, blah, blah. And known her for a while. And... He said he picked her up and we was going back home to New Norfolk and he drove down a bush track, turned off just before New Norfolk and went down a bush track and she, uh, she panicked and she, she started to scream. So she wanted to get out of the car. Stop the car, I want to get out, I want to get out. And he stopped the car. As soon as he stopped, he strangled her. So she never got out of the car. And then he, with her strangled in the car, he drove down the end of the track and then he pulled her out of the car and he raped her and then he he looked around and found a rock, a fairly small one, and he bashed her head with it and then he bagged her in the bushes and left there because I remember him telling me about, he said there was mud, God, street. He said I couldn't drag her any further. He said the mud was over me bloody boots. He said so I just left her there. And I thought to myself, well, it must be near the river somewhere. And he quite enjoyed with a big smile on his face telling me all this. 
did you think about telling the police what Hunt had told you back then? No, because I just thought he was bloody like Murray, you know, just big noting himself like everyone does in jail. You only believe half the bullshit they tell you. Okay. I asked him, would he ever do it again? He said, yeah, sure. He said, I loved it. In the lead up to the coronial inquest, the Butterworth family and police made a public appeal for information about Lucille's fate. It was on the news or something about the Butterworth case, they're reopening it. So I rang the police up or Launceston police and told them that what I'd, what I'd heard. I wouldn't have cared, I'd have shut my mouth forever, except they let him out. Harris is right. When Hunt was given a minimum sentence and then released in 2000, everything did change. Hunt could argue he was just big-noting as Harris had done when he supposedly confessed in 1980. However, at that time, he had no prospect of ever being released. Perhaps he had nothing to lose and he stood to gain a friend, a kindred spirit in a hostile environment. He's a very clever man, don't get me wrong. He's, I tell you what, he's got astronomical brain, that man, but uh, he's psycho. You can tell when you talk to him. If you talk to him, you know there's something not right. And you were the only one he spoke to. Why do you think he spoke to you? Well, like all, all people do, they still do today. Any bad criminal or any just like to look at me and trust me and speak to me. But it wasn't just Harris that Hunt allegedly opened up to. Three years earlier, he was in a prison yard with a convicted pedophile named Philip Thoe, who lived on the state's northwest coast. Thoe also contacted police before the inquest, claiming that Hunt had told him he'd killed a woman named Jill Butterworth. Hunt said he had disposed of her body in or near the water and that her remains would never be found, according to Thoe. Then a third former inmate contacted police. In 1977-78, Lee Wise had been in prison and he had a job delivering stores to the prisoners in the yards. He told of an encounter with an inmate he described as an albino. The albino was serving a sentence, a big one, and said they'd got him for one, but they hadn't got him on another one. An actor is reading from his evidence. The albino prisoner said the best way to pick up a sheila was at the bus stop. He said he looked for them at a bus stop when they were looking at their watch. If they were agitated or anything like that, he just pulled over and offered them a lift somewhere. Milhouse still needed to identify the albino prisoner, and Wise helped him out. He said the inmate had told him he loved old Jamaica chocolate. Milhouse took this to the Hunt family, who confirmed that Bill Hunt had brought old Jamaica chocolate home for his kids from the RSL. Police now had three jailhouse witnesses, each independently offering confessions Hunt had allegedly made. Going into the inquest, they had their suspect painted into a corner by his own admissions. Carrie Milhouse. I interviewed two of those three former inmates and fully aware of the, the statement of the third. What I find really interesting is that they all came forward after the publicity of the inquest, but all three served in different places with Geoffrey, at different times with Geoffrey, and all had different stories to tell, but they all made sense. So I give, I give every one of those good credibility. But Hunt had one thing going for him. Greg Richardson would be his counsel for the first two days of the inquest. In Tasmania, Richardson would be viewed as, if not the best, one of the best criminal mm. barristers in the state. <laughs> and Richardson is just hitting back at the coroner. He is bang. He has an argument within the first five minutes of the inquest starting about... Hunt had received a letter or something. It purportedly came from Lucille. The address for Hunt was not to be released. The coroner had argued that. And somehow Hunt had received a card that said something, you'll get yours, or something of that nature. 
Bridgerton, boom, swings it around, and that's what we spoke about for the first half hour of the inquest. Mm. This is what smart barristers do. Bang, 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 I'm here. His client's sitting there, poof, yeah. <laughs> then... Foe gets in the witness box. Philip Foe was the first of the former inmates to give evidence. Foe goes through everything. Simon Nicholson, counsel assisted, helps him through. Well done, Philip Foe. I know Philip Foe because I'd worked on the Northwest Coast. So I think, oh dear. Then it starts. <laughs> Richardson gets up. Boom, 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 boom. The barrister launched a highly personal attack on Foe's credibility. Rattled, Foe tried to leave the court. Foe gets out. I have to grab Foe. Get back in. Philip, you can't do this. You'll go to jail. Lucille's family watched proceedings with growing amazement. They were learning of so many leads that hadn't been followed up or simply ignored. In the coroner's court was new and compelling evidence. However, it was coming from felons, including a convicted rapist and a pedophile. I caught up with Lucille's younger brother, John, in Canberra recently. He doesn't spend much time in Tasmania these days. Too many traumatic memories there. The family was trapped in Tasmania, waiting for answers. His father died in 1984 and his mother lingered on until 2008. You know, Mum, she basically lived with it every day. I mean, she would wake up wondering and go to sleep wondering. Um, We said to Mum, you know, why don't we move somewhere else? But we knew deep down, and once again, because I mentioned to you that Mum lived with this every day, day in and day out. We would sit at a table like this, we had a table or something like this, and we would sit around and talk about it. And we'd go round and round in circles. Um, and when it all boiled down, Mum didn't want to leave that place because she felt in her heart that if she did, Lucy would walk up the driveway. So tell me, how did it affect your perception of Tasmania and the place that you grew up and the, and the certainties that you thought were certainties? I hated it. I hated it for a long time. For the coroner to hold an inquest after so long felt like a kind of victory. Finally, the Butterworths heard about Hunt's alleged confession in 1976 and the evidence of the three inmates backed that up. But John began to have doubts that justice would be done after the mauling of Philip Thoe's credibility. You look at all of that, Adam, you know, and just just those three, for example, whether you could believe them, whether they were creditable enough as witnesses in a criminal court, Richardson would have ripped them to pieces. Richardson, he's done a number of things here. He's shown that he can tear this witness to pieces. He's also let that witness know, you turn up again... And this is a taste of what you're going to get. And the other witnesses? They're... What the hell? Richardson was only available to Hunt for two days, but the other witnesses now knew what was coming. Philip Harris was in Risdon Prison Hospital because he was a suicide risk. His state of mind in 1980, when Hunt allegedly confessed, would be forensically dissected in the Supreme Court, as would his medical history. He's had numerous mini-strokes and has no short-term memory could a jury rely on memories from four decades earlier? Though wouldn't even return my call. At least Philip Harris is still ready to give evidence. Of course I would, if it helped. I'm a big believer in, hey, whatever you do in life, don't do it unless you can cop it sweet. 
Jeffrey Hunt spent three days in the witness box and repeated the denials and evasions he'd offered up to the police in his 2014 interview. He, he just lied. He just totally lied in court. And he was he was tripped up so many times by Simon Nicholson. The counsel assisting the coroner. Or by Simon Cooper. The coroner. And they, and they both turned around and said, you are a liar. As in the interview, Hunt displayed perfect recall of many aspects of 1969, but nothing of Lucille. And it's quite funny how he can bring up something about a car that, um, you know, the, the number five cylinder was missing and yet he can't remember Lucille. And they had a picture. And he was asked numerous times, do you know Lucille Gay Butterworth? There she is in that picture. He wouldn't look at it. He kept looking at the brick wall or Simon Cooper. The evidence against the alternative suspect, John Lonergan, was dealt with by the coroner, but by the end of the hearing, there was only one person in the frame. You look at, look at him and everything like that and you say he's a guilty man. And the coroner agreed. An actor is reading from the finding he made in 2016. On the journey to New Norfolk, Mr Hunt stopped the FB Holden, strangled Miss Butterworth in the vehicle and thereafter disposed of a body on the southern bank of the Derwent River, past the Limekilns area, roughly halfway between Granton and New Norfolk. It's unusual for a coroner to make such a definitive finding of guilt where there's been no body recovered and the bulk of evidence is circumstantial. The Tasmanian Police Commissioner Darren Hine had no choice but to apologise to the family. An actor is reading from his statement. The Butterworth family and those who loved her deserve an apology for the deficiencies of the initial investigation and I intend to meet with them to personally express my sincere apologies. Based on the information revealed by recent investigations, Miss Butterworth's family may have had the answers they deserve if her disappearance had been treated differently by police at the time. While I cannot explain the actions or attitudes of investigators at the time, I can assure both Miss Butterworth's family and the Tasmanian community that policing has changed significantly since 1969. An apology was welcome, but it rang hollow. There was no explanation from the police commissioner, or the coroner for that matter, about the strange inaction over Hunt's alleged confession and why it stayed under wraps for decades. Jim Butterworth. It's been worthwhile to circumvent to us, there's no doubt about that. <clears throat> there's things that we've hear, heard that we didn't know. One thing I am shitty about is the fact that uh, the police knew that that was the site up there where Lucille was suspectedly put by Hunt. We never knew about that bloody site until, well, recently, in recent years. So why the freaking hell didn't they back there then uh, tell us where it was? I would have been up there at 100 miles an hour straight away into that bush and searching in amongst that crappy bloody area. Mm. And never told, never given her the opportunity mm. to go and look for her sister. Maybe it was easier to lay the blame at the door of a dead man, the late Orb Canning. It was Canning who'd become obsessed with John Lonergan as the culprit, rather than focusing on the evidence in front of him. So, from 1976 to 2014, Tasmanian police drove past Lucille's possible gravesite without ever turning a single sod. They'd stood back when Hunt was granted his freedom in 2000. Yet Commissioner Hines was able to spin something positive from this dismal failure. It was the work of current investigators that uncovered the failings of the past investigation and new information which may have been examined by the coroner. I would like to thank current investigators, Inspector David Plumpton, retired, Senior Constable Christine Rushton, and Constable Carrie Milhouse for their dedication to the pursuit of answers for the Butterworth family. For the investigators, the coroner's finding was welcome, but the goal was still to charge a suspect and to put them before the Supreme Court. 
the case still felt in many ways incomplete and unsatisfying. Tasmania's Director of Public Prosecutions, Daryl Coates, had a brief of evidence, but did he have enough to try Jeff Hunt for Lucille's murder? We'll find out in Episode 5 of Understate, Lucille Butterworth. Lucille Butterworth is a real crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Billy Simons. Listener.